No, it's... <laughs> welcome back. I'm getting the finger. Welcome back to the Other Side Lifestyle Podcast with Jim and Aram. Dave might not know this, but that will be the introduction where I interrupt myself and say Aram was giving me the finger. He had something in his eye. It looked like he was yawning or something. I make a comment about, I'm sorry to bore you. It's what we do. Today, Luckily, we have a doctor in the house, so we're we all going to be fine. We have all a right. doctor in the house. We have Dr. <laughs> David McConey. And we just, as we were talking before getting on, found out that we live in, well, not currently, but grew up in the same state, went to the same college, and vacation at the same beach. Yep. Yeah, and took and took two totally different life paths. Dave is <laughs> is out there educating and helping people, and Jim is destroying the youth of America one day at a time. Ah, oh, that's We've my only thing, hope and dream. <laughs> you know, you have to destroy lives so then you can build them up. Yeah, take the Marines, take the so Marines. That's, yeah, that's that's my goal for the most part with I'm people. Gonna, I'm going to pull up Dave's post that will give him the best introduction that I can possibly give him. So. Dave is somebody that I've been following for a while, uh, and then I fell immediately in love with him after this post, and the post said, unless you happen to have a PhD in a very related field, a doctorate means very little in the fitness world and absolutely not make you an expert in nutrition or exercise science. Mm. Dave, talk to us about where you're from, what your education is, and why that post was important for you also. Sure. So, uh, yeah, so where I'm literally from is, a, you know, grew up in New Jersey. Jim and I were just talking about that and uh, went to college, studied exercise science there and then went on to get my DDS. So that's doctor of dental surgery degree. Uh, so now I'm a practicing dentist. I coach people. I train people. Uh, I've got the podcast Brains Against podcast. It's something I've been passionate about since I was really about 12 to 14 years old is when I got really into it. Uh, regarding that post, it's just something, you know, we, we see all the time. And there's, uh, you know, I, I call it promiscuous expertise. I've heard that from somewhere else. But basically, this idea a, that that's a great term. Yeah, yeah. You know, just because you're an expert in one thing does not mean that you're an expert in, in even somewhat related fields, you, you know, Huberman. <clears throat> well, so <clears throat> he, he's certainly an example. Um, and it, it's, it's very understandable that it's, you have a platform like we do, that you are going to branch out into other topics. And that's fine. You know, I mean, I, I'm uh, very interested in finance in psychology, but I'm not a true expert in that, right. And so I can talk about it, I can speculate on it. But it doesn't mean that you should necessarily be taking my advice or my word as gospel there. And I think we see that with a lot of these people. I mean, you know, you mentioned one name, but there's a lot of names in, in this kind of tangential topics where people have some expertise and then they cross over and people assume that because they said it you know that it's necessarily going to be accurate and uh it, it sometimes can just be flat out wrong and i think as if the person is representing it as true and not necessarily hey you know i'm just kind of discussing it then you run into a lot of problems I, f I feel triggered for paul saladino with that introduction <laughs> even though i do if nobody knows his name, he was formerly the carnivore MD, Paul Saladino, but he has changed his oh. tune. I just watched a little interview with him where he's admitting and he changed his name on Instagram. He's admitting that wasn't the way to go. The original oh, really? carnivore. Yeah, the original carnivore MD didn't even eat fruit. And then I guess maybe a couple of years ago, he started eating fruit. and He's like, this is good, but still kale and vegetables are bullshit. 
and now he uh, he's talking about how he is eating vegetables. He's feeling really? better. Yeah, and all that stuff. Wow. And now it just seems like most of his things, if they're recent, you can't tell with Instagram the way things show up. But the vegetable oils, the seed oils, things like that is what mm. he, for the most part, demonized. He might still hate kale. I don't know. I mean, that's a whole T-shirt line that he has. But I do... I. <laughs> I have earned some respect for him for actually yeah. switching gears. At the same time, that whole first gear is what got his supplement line going, and he still has that supplement line. So it's like yeah. that's his bread and butter. He could switch, you know, his tone with stuff, but I, I, I give him some respect for switching his tone. So, David, what? So obviously, as a dentist, completely different arena than 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 exercise science and exercise fizz and nutrition um how do you find the time man i mean i mean i shit i know dental practices that are crazy busy and you said you're also coaching and training people like how do you make it all work yeah it's very busy so i own my own practice so that you know that's basically two and one so i've got the clinical aspect and then i've got the managerial side of it um you know i, I coach people i i have started to take a few and fewer clients just because uh it, it's just not to me, that is more something I do as a passion and it's a hobby. It's not really something I do from a financial standpoint. It, it sure. makes up a very, very small portion of like, you know, what, what comes in. Um, and for people who have seen a number of episodes of the podcast, podcast is, is kind of like a closed loop as far as like the money comes in. I donate quite a bit of it to charity. And so it's not, that's not why I'm, I'm doing it. And so if I'm taking on more than, I mean, honestly, even half a dozen like clients that i'm truly working with at this point it it's just starts to be i think the quality goes down so i usually say five to ten people at a time i'm helping out and then uh you know the rest of it is just kind of you know and even even i mean i'm sure you guys get this too people reach out they say you know i can help build your brand and i can do all this stuff and get you more clients it's like i'm I'm really not looking for more clients yeah. so you know it, it's just a lot of a lot of stuff like that now a lot of your stuff and your podcasts discusses this and a lot of your posts discuss it you seem to have a pretty lean, uh, a pretty heavy lean into the hypertrophy world. Yep. Um, and I, I tend to be somebody that falls into that camp, but I've all, I, I used to be biased or turns towards certain things. I've now, I can very much admit that I have a bias towards bodybuilding and hypertrophy as the best modality for body composition improvement. Mm -hmm. Um, I could justify it in a thousand different ways, but I'm curious to hear what your take is as far as the different modalities of training that exist out there. And quantifiably, is there truly a best way? Because that is a discussion that we have a lot of lay folks have, right? What is the best workout for me to get the body that I want? Because most people don't give a shit about deadlifting heavier yeah. or doing a pull-up. Like they, they, they may say it out loud, but really what they want is they want to be able to look great naked. And that's what most folks I think are looking for. So in your in your in your search for this, have you seen anything to be kind of what the best is? So what is the best way to train or what is the best way specifically to train for hypertrophy? I would say that what is the best way to train if your goal is is primarily body composition improvement? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, as much as I hate to just use anecdote, there's a reason that bodybuilders tend to look the best out of all the lifting, you know, competitions like strongman and powerlifting and, and whatnot. Obviously, there's plenty of bro science involved with that, you know, especially I think in the more enhanced community, but the, the data is out there. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of examples of people who have switched from maybe let's say a powerlifting type uh, program to bodybuilding and seen 
favorable changes in body composition and whatnot and, and how they're looking. Um, I, I think for me, if you guys know like the the DC training, like Dog Crap and, and Dante Trudell, are you familiar with them? So I know Trudell um, pretty well, yeah. Okay. So, you know, one of the things I, I like, there's certain things, older principles that maybe don't apply as much, but I think one of the good things he did with bodybuilding was to say, okay, stop focusing on just this pump and fluff type of stuff and focus on getting strong in the moderate rep ranges, right? And just lifting heavy weight. And that can be conflated for some people to say, oh, I'm just always trying to hit PRs. And that's not what I'm saying. But I, I really do revert back to the basics of if you find, let's say, a key three or so exercises per body part, and over time, while, you know, obviously good nutrition and, and gaining weight and everything, you are increasing your strength in those moderate rep ranges. To me, that's the way to gain muscle. And you can get into the finer details that you've got weaker body parts, you've got to do certain things. But if we're just talking like, you know, broad strokes, increase, let's, let's say like a hammer strength, chest press from two plates to four plates for a sets of 12, that person's going to be much, much bigger. And, you know, obviously there's different ways to do that, but I, I always try to come back to that progressive overload. And I think what a lot of times you see is you see a lot of really big, strong guys that are just already kind of built that way naturally because they just tend to be one of these mid 250 or 300 pounders, especially in the male community. And they tend to have a knack for kind of just the big three lifts. Mm -hmm. But you could see some pretty strong bodybuilders too. And then this bleeds into the conversation of functional training or functional strength. And this is where you start to branch off into the group fitness classes and the CrossFits of the world where they're they're talking about the movements that they use are more functional than bodybuilding movements. And I always tend to have a bias against that because in my opinion, when you're training any exercise in a full range of motion with little orthopedic risk, how is that not functional? Uh, I would say from my experience going, because this is where sometimes me and Aram slightly differ um, with this stuff. When I was training CrossFit, I you're sore a lot. You know, I was bet I did have better mobility with things. I was able to do front squats, thrusters, things like that. Now, what's functional? Carrying groceries in or having to handle some kind of a wild situation where you're yeah. getting down low. So that's the weird thing where it gets into the, the functional thing. And then when I shifted and I had a coach that was really programming things based on some of my shortcomings with being a little uh, tilted pelvically, doing a lot of single leg stuff, I ended up feeling the best. I, I did have a lot of body composition changes doing that type of training to Aram's, um, to Aram's point. With It was more bodybuilding type stuff, but there was that functional undertone to a lot of the movements. Uh, so it's, I think what it's like, what is functional? I feel like that's just changed over the years. Like, it's, what does functional even mean? Well, I, that's what I was going to ask is, you know, when you say functional, what what does that mean? Like, how are you defining it? Because I don't, I don't know if somebody's got, do you literally mean a movement that can make me function better at, during activities of daily living? Like, like, what does that mean? And you could also make the argument that people who do CrossFit movements and dynamic lifting a lot of time have a higher injury rate, right? If you look at the studies, strong man per thousand hours, you know, it's going to have a higher injury rate compared to let's say like powerlifting, which is going to be higher than bodybuilding. And if you look at most 50 year old, like, you know, body or let's say 50 year old powerlifters who've been doing it for 20 years, most of them have a lot of injuries, right? Not everybody, but a lot of them have injuries. 
is that fifth year old who's riddled with injuries more functional because he's been doing the big three, but now he's got all these injuries compared to bodybuilders who a lot of times like they're really not that injured. I mean, again, broad stroke, but um, I, I would say, how can you prevent injury long-term so you can be doing this and not be hobbling talking about how you used to be able to do stuff, you know? Yeah, I think some of the some of the bodybuilding, the people that are injured, it was just overuse injury over time, not the average. So the people that are listening understand when we say that stuff about bodybuilders, that would be just anybody who's in the gym training bodybuilding style, not trying to get a hundred pounds on their frame, which does mm -hmm. have a negative. Even when we talk about BMI, like BMI, we can't use, but at the same time, a a five eight three hundred and twelve pound bodybuilder who ha who's considered morbidly obese on the BMI scale that's still a stress on their heart carrying sure. that and their joints carrying that kind of stuff. So there is that line as well where BMI can give you some information. Yeah, Dan, curi curious to hear your point on this. So the problem that I think we face as an industry is that we're seeing people and we're getting people in their most desperate moments, right? Like they've gained a bunch of weight. They're not happy with their body. They don't, they're not happy with how they feel. And they may not have the lifting background and the eating knowledge and the baseline that you and I and, and some of our clients have developed over the course of decades, right? They don't, I started out using nothing but barbells and free weights. And then I graduated into kind of more of a bodybuilding style, cable machines, hammer strength. And that's where I live now. But I had to go from one thing to graduate to the next thing. Our clients, most of the time, if they're hiring us, they don't have the time horizon to build up this, this lifting acumen, to get them really good at the baseline level lifts, know how to use barbells properly, know how to use dumbbells properly. So unfortunately for us as practitioners, we have to circumvent that process a little bit and speed it up just to get some of that emotional buy-in is there a way to do that effectively without losing kind of sight on the big picture of like, hey, like we're going to get you that win now, but understand that like there are, it's bigger than just this thing that you're chasing right now. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the biggest factors as a coach. And this is something I talk about frequently because at the end of the day, I, I mean, really, even if, you know, we all want to think we have like A plus programs and coaching and, and whatnot. But honestly, even if you got your client to very consistently do, let's say a B minus program, if they're coming from nothing, they're still going to get better results, right? A lot of it is the psychology and getting the, that buy-in. And, you know, I, I think about like my profession, if somebody comes in and they're in pain, it, it really doesn't take a lot of convincing to get them to get the treatment because pain is a very powerful motivator, right? It's like whatever you can do to take this pain away. When we're talking about our clients with training, it's more of a, a long-term, okay, I've been, I've, it's still a pain point, right? But it's pain for the last decade. I've been out of shape. I've been unhappy with how I, I am. And to tell them, well, it's going to take this very long time. I don't have this solution. Like here's Ozempic or something, you know, it, it's going to take a long time. A lot of that is, is how do you get the buy-in? And, and personally, I feel like that's, I, I try to come back to that progressive overload because at some point I'm not going to be coaching this person. And I would like to get them into a pattern of those small dopamine hits over time that's like, oh, this was better than last time. And this was better than last time, you know, and, and maybe it's not progressive overload in the gym. Maybe it's like, hey, you know, frequent weigh-ins can be helpful. I mean, again, studies show that people who step on a scale more often tend to have better success. And I think part of that is that they're obviously monitoring something. 
But if they're seeing that number go down over time, if that's their goal, then that that can be a good strategy as well. But a lot of it's just that psychology. And the psychological part is where I think a lot of coaches today are just missing out on. They're not having these conversations with people. Like I'm, I'm spending so much time on the phone just discussing why any resistance to non-compliance, right? I want to be able to make sure that if there's non-compliance or not adherence to a plan, I want to be able to nip it in the bud before it becomes a problem. Because the reality is, is a lot of coaches are going to be reactive. So they're going to hear about somebody's problems a week or two afterwards. And they've submitted their check-in form or whatever else. And then now they're getting feedback on something they've already forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Like when I get training videos from people, I'm immediately like, if I can answer them immediately, I will be like, hey, where do you feel that? Like they're doing a lat pull down. Do you feel it in the lower portion of your lats if that's the intention? Mm-hmm. Mrs. Jones is not going to remember where she felt the lat pull down a week from her doing it. So yeah. if you add, if you give her a review a week after she sent it to you, I mean, this process is going to be, this already long process is going to take even longer because you can't do things in real time. And in my opinion, these things need to be addressed in real time. I'm not sure how you feel about that. Yeah, I, I think it probably depends on where the person's coming from. I have some clients who I, you know, will text and I, I talk to on a nearly daily basis. And I have other clients who they're fine with every two week check-ins. And obviously those are completely different uh, scenarios. You know, if somebody's got a lot of experience, they might just say, hey, this is what's going on. I'm kind of stalled. What would you do differently? There's some people who, and I think this is one of the nice things about not doing it for, you know, my my, my main career is that I can sometimes turn people away if I don't think it's necessarily what they need, you know, or I'll say, hey, just maybe a consult, maybe like a one hour consult rather than you don't, you don't need comprehensive coaching. I'm sure you guys have a whole spectrum of clients, um, but some people are going to have a, a much greater background. Another thing, I don't know if you guys um, coach people into contest prep, right? But something like that is going to be way more involved, right? Than somebody who's just like, hey, I'm just trying to get generally healthier. I think the contest prep stuff would almost be easier, to be honest with you, because those people are so dialed in. Yeah. yeah. And they have yeah, such they a can strong also- why that, like, you know, your average person, the weekends are here. The travel stuff, the family stuff, the fuckets are creeping in. I think Your the contest prep people are more dedicated on average, but there's a lot of neuroticism. Needy. Yeah, yeah, yeah for especially as it gets closer, you know, constant hunger, especially if it's their first competition. And then it's like, you know, a lot of people are not prepared for what's going to happen as they get lean. So um, plus, there's both sides to it. Yeah, plus they're expecting, the especially if it's the first time they're working with somebody, they're expecting the coach to have this perfect protocol. But it's like, we don't know how your body's going to respond to water and salt and when do we have to introduce things and all that kind of stuff like you have to get to know so anybody doing contest prep stick with maybe your coach for more than one competitions they can learn your body a little bit when it comes to that but you'll see that with those with the athletes the high level athletes um they're they're, they can be potentially more needy a little Mm -hmm. bit more attention if they're high I, i worked with a guy who was an olympic skeleton like the bobsled but by himself oh shit yeah and uh, yeah, it was needy guy. Same thing. Like he was the PT guy that I go to worked with him, and uh, he's just like very yeah needy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can get like that. <laughs> I also it's think okay. that our, there are our industry tends to set unrealistic standards and expectations for clients because they don't they don't deal with frustration well. And I'll give you an example. So let's say for example, somebody's four weeks into a program with you and they're either they're not losing weight. Now, granted, they've been about 70% adherent for those four weeks. A lot of coaches are not going to get on the phone and be like, hey, Mrs. Jones, let me just explain to you 
we need some compliance here. Compliance does not mean 70-30. It means 85-15 at least, if not 90-10. This is what you should expect. We're going to see wave. Like, they're not going to take the time to do that because they probably have either way too many people or they don't give a shit. So what we see a lot of times is we see this non-compliance turn into this isn't working, which then turns into the coach placating to the client and then altering macros, switching workouts. And then what it does is it just consistently reinforces this need for novelty. Do you find that that is a really big problem that we're facing? Is this need for novelty? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think that is one of the things that I'll, I mean, so I will say one of the nice things about with my clients is that they generally find me through the podcast, which means they generally know my views on things. And I'm pretty open about the fact that if something is working, you should stick with it, that there's not these like secrets out there. I, it's pretty rare that somebody finds me who has no experience with anything, right? Um, so so I think I probably deal with it less, but I know a lot of people on Instagram and whatnot, they're dealing with almost entirely gen pop. And, you know, I think was it one or two videos ago, I was talking about how a lot of gen pop just thinks like, like, what's a good workout? And they'll say, oh, I had the best workout. And it's like, well, what do you mean? Well, my my trainer, they had me do this thing. And then I did this thing. And I really felt like a burn later. And I'm like, I, you know, I guess in their mind, that's like they got to sweat, right? To me, it, it goes back, okay, did you progress from last time, et cetera, et cetera. So they're looking for this new cool movement. And I, I understand novelty can be motivating. I do understand that not everybody's a robot and just wants to do the exact same thing every time. Um, but they need to distinguish between we're doing this to keep it entertaining for you versus we're doing this because you need to do it for results. Yeah, I think that's good for any coach to even understand. I remember Zach Evanesh, if you guys know him, he's from the Squan. Zach Evanesh, he's the Rutgers uh, strength conditioning coach for like the wrestling team or something. Okay. You know, whatever. He's he's highly respected in the space with strength and conditioning. It's all about talking about how kids are coming in just weaker and weaker than ever, and how strength and like old school strength, picking things up, carrying things, stuff like that for the athlete. Um, but he's like, yeah, like these kids that just want to get a bicep pump. Sometimes. So at the end of a workout, hey, let's run the rack with the biceps. You sure. know, I gave you what you needed, and then I gave you this novelty thing of something that you wanted. So even if a if a coach is struggling with that, maybe that kind of what what you said, you just say, hey, this is the thing that's going to make this workout fun. We'll do this little burner kind of thing at the end. If it's yeah. not detrimental to what their training was, but they do need to understand exactly what you just said that progressive overload. When it comes to, and Rob kind of asked it a little bit earlier, but then we I think distract ourselves. If somebody's new like you were talking about the general gen pop person new to it not a teenager early 20s anymore do you think that there's any benefit or direction that would be better for them with hypertrophy bodybuilding type training when it comes to do i need to learn the big three lifts versus using machines can you start with one and go the other i mean rom started doing that stuff then he got into bodybuilding a lot of people might be doing the opposite and they think I've never really deadlifted or learned how to squat correctly. Do you think there's any best method when it comes to which one versus the other should you start with? Yeah, well, first I would say I don't think there needs to be a dichotomy between the three big freeway lifts and then like machines. Like I think to some people, they think like you're powerlifting, you're doing these things or you're doing like, you know, these lightweight, you know, like Cybex machines or, or whatever. And I think there's a, a broad spectrum there. Um, I don't think there's anything special about a barbell squat, barbell deadlift, barbell bench, right? Um, but I do that's think gonna, that's going to piss a lot of people off, Dave. But so yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> you know what's funny? Like, I, and I don't know your viewers because 
sometimes you lose sight of you know you kind of get in your little bubble right because the people who i talk to regularly that's that's not a controversial statement like at, at this point that's kind of accepted right yep. but you're right there's probably a lot of people out there who are like oh my god like that's you know like maybe mark ripto's like ripping out his remaining hair or something but to me i i think that if you look at freeway movements there's a lot of great benefits to them um i think if somebody was just to go in untrained and just do strictly machines all the time i mean i i don't know if I've seen too many examples of that. I wouldn't love that. Like I wouldn't say to do that as a, unless somebody was like so obese that they were, there was actually a risk to doing a lot of these freeway movements, right? Like they're so obese that they literally cannot squat down. Um, you know, there's like an injury risk error, then maybe, but for the most part, I do think it would be beneficial to incorporate some freeway movements, maybe just not the big three. I don't necessarily think that, you know, like a barbell bench press is necessary for anybody compared to a dumbbell bench press for example and well, it kind of goes back to go ahead. And, go and goals too right that's like, what i was just know, gonna if say I a, if i have a 50 year old female who's looking to improve body comp she doesn't have to fucking touch a barbell bench press ever in her life for yeah. any reason outside of just she feels like it or saw it on instagram right right and and, and then <laughs> i mean the amount of exercises now that we're seeing that are turning into one rep maxes like the fucking hip thrust Oh yeah, is, is now like the new popular thing that we have to max out on. What's your like, what's your max with the hip thrust, Ron? <laughs> My max with the hip thrust. I yeah, don't, what's your hip thrust max? I haven't put one eighty more than one eighty five on a hip thrust <laughs> in five years because I used to be the asshole that would put six plates on right. and then need need like three people spotting my hip thrust like an asshole. I want you to know, Dave. The reason he doesn't do more than one eighty five is because that's roughly my body weight. That's the only weight he ever needs to hip thrust. Also true. I'm trying to also, keep it as, as homoerotic as possible. <laughs> also, I, I don't think that I don't think that Brett Contreras will let me into the glute lab if I if I can't get above two twenty five. So maybe I'm disqualified at this point. Yeah. Like, like that's but let's be honest. Like like a hip thrust is a single joint exercise. Like yes, the ankles are kind of moving. Yes, the knees have to do something. But it's really to me, it's like a glorified hamstring curl or a kickback. Mm. Like you don't need to put six hundred pounds on it and then try to throw it off the floor for one rep because again and this is something i think i want you to explain to our to our listeners the concept of volume over the course of a week so we, i mean we've seen research on what like three to 20 reps taken to near failure should produce some type of strength and muscle growth that's pretty universal at this point but when it comes to like i mean obviously for us we're programming exercise for people to the best of our knowledge but if somebody didn't want to hire a coach and they wanted to design their own program and they wanted the, the the meat and potatoes of the program to be body comp focused, which again, probably most likely hypertrophy focused, how can they set something up on a weekly basis that would make sense? You mean, how can they distribute the volume or you're talking like starting from scratch to set up a routine? Yeah. I mean, bare boat, like 30,000 foot view. What would it, what would a decent routine look like for that person? Yeah. I, I mean, so I, I just want to keep this very, like I said, very broad. Because <laughs> yes, 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 dick, yes. What a dick question. It's a bad, it's a tough question, <laughs> but I think it's an important question. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's just because there's so many factors so many that factors. go into it, obviously. You know, it's like. No, uh, I know, I know. But, but again, depending on one's goals, like if you're saying to me, okay, like I'll try to make it a little more specific by using examples. So somebody comes to me and yes. they're like, hey, 40 years old, overweight, maybe I listed a little bit in high school, but, you know, pretty much nothing since then. I want to lose fat, but I am also, you know, I'm kind of quote unquote skinny fat. So I want to gain, you know, muscle and, and that, in that situation. And we, this is a whole separate conversation, but we could talk about the ability to recomp and whatnot. And in that situation, that's almost certainly possible for that individual, right? To gain muscle and lose fat concurrently. 
I would probably start them. I personally like either a full body or an upper lower split in that example. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with bro splits. I know they got a lot of hate for many years and then some, you know, they kind of come back. I, I think bro splits can, I mean, you know, you got to define bro split, but I think uh, let's call it body part split can be fine for many people. Um, but if somebody's totally new to it, I, I'm not going to say, hey, like you need a day for your biceps and triceps. Like I'm just probably not going to be prescribing that, right? Yeah, when you're 40% um, body fat, you don't need to be doing arms for two days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, and I also want to be realistic. So sometimes I'll set a routine where it's like, look, this routine can be done between two to four days per week, right? So that you're not feeling like crap if you had to miss a day and then you did two days. Or if, yeah, you maybe like the family's away and you just have some time and motivation and you want to go four days. And I think that can be done with an appropriately scaled full body routine. Uh, I mean, obviously, full body, you don't necessarily want to go back to back, um, but you could do like three or four, depending on the spacing and kind of like a, let's say, upper lower, like an A1, B1, A2, B2 kind of routine. Um, and this way, you can go back to back if you need to. But if again, if it's a tough week, a lot of stress at work, you could just do one of each um, and trying to design that now again, I mean, program design could obviously be a whole podcast in, in itself. But, Five podcasts. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, but in terms of volume, I, I start people with relatively low volume, again, because the psychological aspect, I don't want to tell this person like, okay, so you got to do you know, four sets per body part per workout. And if it's full body, then, you know, you got, you know, it's called like the eight, you know, shoulders, biceps, triceps, chest, back, hams, quads, calves. So now you're doing, you know, 32 only, sets. <laughs> it's only 40 <laughs> sets. It's not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just like, and then it, that that's very overwhelming for somebody who's, I mean, that'd be overwhelming for me, right? I, I don't want to do 32 sets, like really hard in a workout, especially if it's my full body. So, um, I, I do start people relatively low because the stimulus you need at that level is so minimal. You know, a 40 year old who hasn't lifted in 20 years, you really don't need a ton of stimulus. So I'll sometimes start people with, you know, a couple of sets per session per body part, maybe um, weekly volume. If you want to look at it that way, could be four to eight sets per body part. If we're talking like the big body parts. And I do think there is something, some merit to the studies that show higher volume can lead to more hypertrophy and, depending on training age and, and whatnot, but um, not not like necessarily the 40 sets. I know the controversial, you know, Brad Schoenfeld study and whatnot, but um, but I do think higher volumes have a place, but but not generally for somebody who's that new to it. Or it depends on what muscle group you're talking about. Like, I think the, I think your 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 middle delt, your biceps, your triceps could probably handle 15 to 20 sets a week if you really wanted to. But I don't think if you're, if you're nailing quads, glutes, lats, pecs for 20 sets what's the quality of the work that's getting done per set at that point mm -hmm. so a lot of sets of mid delt <laughs> well i mean listen it's 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 it's, it's a muscle that, it doesn't tend to grow well on people that already have them so if you're trying to develop that yeah. muscle a little bit more and that again gen pop isn't going to have that problem yeah but can, can you explain the difference between different types of fatigue just because i think people need to really understand kind of just the understanding like the mechanism behind this so there's like there's kind of like that i just did a group fitness class and i'm just i'm shot like i spent 45 minutes running from station to station i'm just physically just tired versus i went in and i did a pull day and my lats my rhomboids and my biceps are exhausted and then describe the difference between those two fatigues and then how does that relate to recoverability 
So, I mean, it sounds like you're mainly kind of distinguishing between cardiovascular fatigue and muscular fatigue or. Do you yeah, I, I guess I would say more like systemic fatigue, which is like, I'm just overall like the CNS is fried. I'm tired. I did a lot of shit, but I didn't do any specific shit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because you could technically have a smaller body part that is extremely fatigued. Right. But systemically not fatigued at all. Right. Obviously like calves and forearms and, and whatnot, you could do. 50 sets really and you're not like going to be the next day be like oh my god i can't get out of bed right it's just not yeah. that, that same thing um i, I think that kind of goes back to before about the different types of oh i had a good workout is and i'm not trying to like hate on let's say like the soccer moms who just go for cardiovascular conditioning like that's still going to have health benefits right that's still going to have a, a caloric burn to it that's still great like get off the couch and do those things that's wonderful um but, you know, I'm sure we've all had clients of like, you know, they'll say, how do I work this, right? And they'll like point to this muscle, like, how do I, I get this bigger? And it's like, well, it's probably not like, you know, just, you know, lightweight adductions or something, right? Like, that's probably not going to be doing it. So um, I, I think mainly it just comes back to categorizing what the goal is and, and placing that fatigue in the right places. Because one that you didn't list was maybe like psychological fatigue, right? And And so some of these things... If you're over time not getting the results that you want, that's going to lead to a psychological fatigue. Um, you could even say like in a dieting phase, there's maybe like a, a quote unquote like adherence fatigue or nutritional fatigue where just doing these things over time, you can only take so many stressors at once, right? So I think you kind of have to place that. Um, I don't know if that's like directly answering your question, but I would say yes, there's certainly different types. Well, and this is why I also think too, from a injury prevention standpoint, from a longevity standpoint, from a stress management standpoint, and then also caloric intake, because I think this is where where a lot of coaches are getting it wrong and where a lot of lay people are getting it wrong is they're not matching nutrition to training properly. So I used to be very dogmatic pro reverse dieting almost everybody, which is the stupidest fucking thing in the world, because if you're 40% body fat, the last thing you need to do is eat more. Now, obviously, we understand that a person can't adhere to a calorie deficit forever and psychologically there's going to be a point at which they break and then if they break they go hard the other way and now whatever happened in eight weeks is going to get undone really quickly because these people do have a relatively sensitive metabolism that's going to not be able to take a 200 calorie surplus and not pack on pounds because they're already metabolically compromised at that point in my opinion so where do you think um if there's if there's a best practices out there right because fueling somebody for crossfit versus fueling somebody for a bodybuilding style routine versus fueling somebody for a powerlifting style routine are all distinctly different. So can you just explain to folks in, in the easiest way possible why those fuel sources and why those fuel requirements are different with each type of modality? And are, are we assuming in this situation, these are all during, and let's say like building phases, are we like ruling out maybe like a contest period? Let's, say, let, let's, let's pull away any, let's, let's keep it in the gen pop realm. Let's, let's just keep these as enthusiasts who are just trying to improve mostly. Again, I want to be a little bit leaner and look like I have actually worked out. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you and I might have different opinions there. I'm not sure what your, your thoughts are. I don't. So if somebody comes to me and again, I'm not like coaching like people who are going to the CrossFit games or anything like that. Right. So there might be differences at the highest level of competition. Um, for me, most of the clients that I have, the nutritional aspect is important. But I don't personally see huge swings in, in like, you know, trying to say, okay, we're trying to time this, you know, perfect pre-workout where you have to have this many carbs, 
per kilogram of body weight or per kilogram of lean body mass before that. There are studies showing that. And, and for, you know, let's say like longer and just um, endurance work and whatnot, that would be a factor. Again, I'm not super familiar with CrossFit. So maybe if there's like these two hour workouts that it could be a bigger factor. I don't personally focus on a lot. I, I think for me, I kind of say, okay, let's set a calorie amount that makes sense for your goals. Let's set a protein amount that makes sense for your goals. Fat versus carbs. I've kind of shied away from that over the years. Not that they don't matter, but I'm talking like obviously at the extreme ends, you're, you know, if you're having no fat or like a ketogenic diet, I, I maybe don't think that's ideal, but I kind of just set them at moderate. And for, again, if we're talking gen pop, it's one less thing for them to worry about. So I do have them send me their nutritional log so I can make sure it seems reasonable that the quality, you know, micronutrients are in line and whatnot. But um, I don't, I don't really super focus on, on those details. Is that significantly different than your experience? So what I find is that the effort expended inside of the gym or with workouts is going to usually help me dictate what fuel source I want to pr prefer. So if somebody tends to be a little bit more glycolytic in nature, let's say they're doing more of the, of the carb depletion style workouts where they're actually, you know, getting some glycogen stores down because they are truly training to at least near failure for what I can see. I'd be a little bit more apt to give that individual a, a, a bit more of a higher carb allotment and maybe I'll moderate and lower fats a little bit because I just don't think we need it. Sometimes I'll go into a calorie cycle with people depending on training days and non-training days. And I find that that works pretty well if they can manage the the variance. But do you, you remember, um, I'm sure you've read Charles Poliquin stuff. Yep. Poliquin was huge on like earning your carbs. Mm -hmm. Um and it's hard for me to disagree with them because I've seen it in practice. And obviously in the, in the gen pop category, it's much harder to, to make these inferences, but in, in more in leaner, more trained individuals, it's not hard to see when somebody's dogging it training wise, and you're giving them more carbs, they look fluffier. They look more water, water retentive, and they don't perform as well because they just, their, their body is not turning over that glycogen as fast as we think it is. But when the training intensity starts to go up to a place where they are starting to get to near mechanical failure all the time on all their lifts, they're going to start burning through carbs like a motherfucker. And before you know it, these people can be getting up to four or 500 grams of carbs a day because they have this, the storage for it. But I don't think that's ever going to be the case for anybody in the gen pop community because I just, A, I don't think they train hard enough. And B, I don't think they're consistent enough with how they're actually eating on an average basis. Yeah, Paul Kuhn had a lot of interesting ideas. I mean, some I thought were great obviously you know he was renowned in a lot of ways other ones like I think at one point he was talking about 40 grams of fish oil per day and things like that i don't know if you remember <laughs> which is that. like 100 grams of fat yeah yeah so um you know he was an interesting guy but I, I i don't know if you saw the research i mean this goes back several years maybe many years at this point where so they were looking at like glycogen depletion in athletes and for just lifting total amount wasn't really that great where there was kind of this idea well you don't have to worry about it and then some newer research came out and uh, Eric Trexler, if you're familiar with him, he did a good mm -hmm. piece on this, just showing that, well, maybe that's true. But when you actually look at some individual muscles over a longer workout, it might actually be a factor. And maybe you do have to factor in that. So to, to your point, if you have somebody who you know has a lot of muscle mass and they're really killing it in the gym um, and they're going to failure and all these things, that may require more specificity towards higher carb amounts, right? And quote, unquote, like earning your carbs. So I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but I would just say most people, it's not a big factor. No, and I think it's the, also the only too. other factor when I when it comes to carbs with people, as far as I'm concerned, 
is their stress levels and things like that. I have somebody who's maybe not training super intensely, but their stress levels are high and the carbs can help with bringing cortisol down. If it's in a controlled way, the timing of it, I've had people where we time carbs, even though that's not necessarily the same thing as uh, the volume of carbs to help them sleep in the evening. They're having a hard time sleeping. We have some carbs in the evening. It helps them sleep. So there's more factors when it comes to maybe a higher carb. And then somebody who's on testosterone is not going to need as much fat. But I'm, I do get concerned with prescribing fat too low for an extended period of time in terms of hormone production and things like that. So it, it does kind of going back to what Dave said, like fine for most people, it's middle of the road, yeah. but you'll get these people. It's like, oh, is 35% better than 32. Is it, is that why I can't lose weight? That's, that's my yeah. distribution. It's like all these <laughs> things are a big range. When it that comes used to be to a big stuff. thing though. I mean, thankfully I don't, I don't, I mean, at least in the circles I'm in, I don't hear it as much, but yeah. back when I was getting into this, like my teen years, percentages of these things were so big. And I remember, I mean, I had such detailed logs trying to find these patterns of like, well, I added sweet potatoes. So now I'm at, you know, 40% carbs instead of 35%. And is that why this thing happened? And it's just, you could try to find patterns in anything, right? And it was just a lot of, you know, nonsense, really. Could you, could you give a range? Because we're throwing out phrases like low carb or high carb or low fat or high fat. Could you give a, some ranges so that person listening, what the hell does that even mean? Where would you then classify like this is low carb? Because Rob just said something, we could bump the carbs up, then he jumps to four or 500, where some people are like, well, 150 is super high for yeah, me. Yeah, 150. So, yeah. What, when we, when in general, when you are saying low, high, moderate in terms of grams, not percentages, where would you throw those numbers? Well, I was going to say, I'm glad you mentioned because percentages don't really mean a lot. I mean, there's something to be said for percentages, like in, in the context of like a ketogenic diet, right? Percentages yes. actually do matter. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, we're, we're really talking more like gram values. Um, I personally try to keep protein around what I would call moderate. And, and I would say that that's like one gram per pound. And obviously you're, you're uh, you said familiar with DC, Dante Trudell. He for a long time was pushing two grams per pound. Um, I think he still is in favor of that. I'm not sure, but most of the industry has kind of backed down There's from that. There's nothing supporting that having any, having any, but look at, but look at who he's working with also, yeah, right? I mean, I mean, he's working with some top level bodybuilding athletes who are some of the best in the world and the most muscular in the world who, yeah, they could justify two grams per pound. The only thing I would say about that is, and again, like at some point, you know, we can't, you know, there's the, we say appeal to authority is, is not a good thing. However, at some point, you know, I'm like, well, if, there is something to be said for authority. Like, like I'm sitting here having trained zero people who have stepped on Olympia stage, right? So I'm not going to be like, well, Dante, you don't know what you're talking about. You, like, I, you know, way more experience in that realm. And I, and I do understand that. Um, I would just say I've seen many times where people will say, oh, well, this worked for me because, you know, I added three protein shakes and I started growing. It's like, well, yeah, you also added like 600 calories from protein shakes. So you're yeah. not factoring in that you did these other things too, right? And so... Um, just, you know, a lot of like confounding things there. Yeah. We're talking to the average person as well. I mean, you got some guys trying to get on stage and he's starving his ass off. Maybe two grams of protein per pound is effective. Yeah. But <laughs> the average, so moderate one gram per pound, roughly. And then where would you put in terms of desired? Highs so people aren't confused. Desired, desired body desired. weight. Like if you're, desired. if you're a 250 pound, five foot three woman with 50% body fat, you don't need yeah, 250 you don't need to shoot for that much. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people use like lean body mass, right? And, and like they'll, yeah. that, that, that can be logical in a lot of ways. Um, the problem with, with trying to put a specific gram per, you know, kilogram or body weight with, um, with fat and carbs is it is so contextual. So 
uh, like I have had people where I could obviously I'll say, you know, you're, you're eating 500 grams of carbs per day. For most people, that's, that is pretty high carb, right? Yes. But for that person, like we could say, well, we're going to go lower carb or low carb. And maybe for them, 250 is low carb. Whereas for somebody else, it, it's, you know, very high. So, um, I don't know if I could really give you, I mean, you know, these numbers are out there, like the textbook of what is recommended and, and at least this much amount of fat per gram and whatnot, or gram per pound, excuse me. Um, I would say, you know, typically you'll see people say at the minimum, you want at least 30 to 35 grams of fat, just as like, you know, again, a broad recommendation for normal hormone production and whatnot. But, but even that, that's really not specific. And I think this question has really got to be based on the person. I think it's, it just comes down to understanding what these foods are actually giving us. And this is something I talk about with my clients incessantly. Like I, I talk to them about what the fuel sources are versus what the building blocks are. Like protein is not a fuel source. It's a building block. It's breaking down into amino acids. Those amino acids are stored in pools. And then when needed upon, they're drawn from carbs. Do, are they, yawn? Percent- Do they yawn after you explain that? Fucking dork. <laughs> I'll, I'll handle you later. <laughs> I will handle. It was 185 pound thrust, man. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will thrust the shit out of you. We got to get a PR, buddy. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you put on a little bit of weight, so maybe we'll. I know maybe you're be a 100, 194 pound. Add PR. 10 pounds to that bar. <laughs> but I think it's important for people to understand because I think people can like protein is also the hardest thing to break down digestively. So if you're eating a shit ton of protein and your body's not handling it. You know, there's people that are going to have digestive issues, bowel issues, and that's a miserable place to be walking around bloated and distended all day because my coach told me to eat a gram per pound and now I'm eating a gram per pound and I'm working out twice a week. Like I don't need that much protein because my body's not going through that level of breakdown. So if you're going through a significant amount of muscle damage, breakdown, whatever, yeah, you could justify a higher protein diet. But if not, like I would rather always start low and build my, my tolerance for anything up high because it sucks pulling food out of people's mouths once they've gotten used to eating it, right? Imagine giving somebody a gram per pound of protein and then two grams of carbs per pound and then they're at 50, 60 grams of fat and then you realize, oh shit, they got heavier and they're not feeling well and now I'm going to start dieting them down. It's not a favorable psychological place to be. So I would rather almost start conservatively lower and then watch them respond and then maybe in, in a week or two weeks or every two weeks, titrate up as opposed to titrate down because i'd rather see what the upper ranges of maintenance calories are for people find that place where they're relatively comfortable they're not seeing a ton of fluctuation they're kind of flat across the board but they're seeing some improvement in measurements they're seeing some improvement in performance and then once we get to that place cool maybe we're at a place where we can diet you down but i think i don't ever really put people into a surplus either i'm not like what are your views on like, what are the types of populations of people that do really require a surplus of calories to grow muscle? Well, I was going to ask real quick um, before we jump into that. Just so I, I don't know how old you guys are, but I I know that now uh, you could both have been lifting for a long time. Do you find with client ages, because we kind of talking about this generic 40 year old person, do you find that you have to make a significantly different nutritional approach for your older clients? I mean, obviously, we can talk about training and injury stuff, too. Um, and Jim, you had mentioned, you know, if somebody's on TRT, which generally, although these days I, I, there's plenty of 20 year olds and whatnot on TRT, but TRT. Um, right, right, right. Um, but do you guys find that you really have to change the nutritional approach as somebody's getting older? Or do you find as long as they're training hard, he hasn't noticed that much? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna always usually base it on what I'm seeing in the mirror as, as far as body fat. Like it's not hard to tell somebody who's got a lot of visible muscle mass versus somebody who's got a lot of visible fat mass. I'm not going to go 12, 13, 14 calories per pound for a fat person who needs to lose weight. I used to, and I got people fatter, and I wish I can go back in time and take these people back and be like, I'm sorry, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. Now I take a much different approach. Like if you're a lean person, I'm going to push calories on you until I find that you're going to start gaining weight. And then that's easy. We we pull back. But if you're fat, I'm not, it's hard for me to justify going above 10 calories per pound. And that's, that's irregardless of age to me. Yeah. 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 I, I, the thing is most people who I say, well, most people who come to me from, again, a more gen pop category or less trained fat loss is the goal. Um, so in that case, obviously, I'm not going into a surplus or even maintenance. Yeah. I mean, yes, they could slowly recomp. But if they're untrained, they can recomp while being in a significant deficit, right? They can still gain muscle while losing a lot of fat. And there's no reason you need to go incredibly slow. Um, the only time, but, but I certainly put people in surpluses. But usually it's when they're relatively lean like most people come to me if they're like 18 plus percent body fat they don't want to bulk up you know um sometimes i have to get people who are 12 percent body fat to accept adding calories right because i'm like look like you're you're gonna hit a wall eventually like you do need to eat so um i would say if anything i have to push people to it but usually we try to get them to a reasonable body fat first yeah let's say with the the only difference for me with your original question is with the older the older the person's getting I am pushing protein more, but stressing the importance of it for their life and their health, mm-hmm. not necessarily just for being full to try to be in a deficit. So that's, I don't, I, I don't really see a big difference in what I'm prescribing or doing, especially because for the most part, it's responding to the individual and how they're handling it. So there's nothing where I'm like, all right, you're this age. You're, yeah. At the same time, there's somebody's post menopause. You got to, you got to be aware of low carb diets. Somebody's at, you know, with the menopausal stuff. I mean, there's, those types of things that would change. Yeah. Yeah. For women, I would agree with that. I would say the biggest differences I see are again, psychological, um, a lot more neuroticism with some of the younger clients, I would say they got to get it done right now. And I totally understand that because, you know, we were all 16 at one point and like trying to impress people, but there's plenty of it at 55, my friend. I'm I'm seeing that (laughs) shit daily. There's plenty of neuroticism when, when they, when I mean, I work with mostly women and when they hit, 48 50 52 and they're in the heat of menopause and everything is changing simultaneously and then god forbid they also get on hrt in the same and then they have fucking this guy talking about amino pools and shit and they're like listen i got this belly fat stop talking about pools (laughs) bitch i'm gonna throw you a pool we have to we have to rip each other a little bit every now i know a little bit you're on vacation though i want to keep you relaxed yeah um dave can you i was gonna ask you um opinions on stuff like uh low fodmap gluten-free dairy-free obviously all very case specific and contextual but you know i i think a lot of times these things are being regarded as like absolute saviors of people's lives and then we see a ton of research that says like well it's irrelevant it doesn't matter whatsoever like like seed oils don't matter dairy doesn't inflame you gluten's fine artificial sweeteners are going to not kill you whatsoever but there are digestive ramifications to anything you put in your mouth so how do you where do you sit on those types of things yeah so oh man the the world of nutritional research is just 
fraught with <laughs> so many confounders, right? And let, let's just even assume that all the research is legitimate, right? Like, like no, and, and I'm not, you know, some conspiracy theorist at all, but let's, you know, there's, there's obviously been some. It's not legitimate. We know it's all not legitimate. <laughs> the sugar studies that are paid for by Coca-Cola, you know, we know that. But, but let's just assume even like not even talking about that. Yeah there's so many confounders with these right i mean it's very hard to have a like long-term randomized controlled trial of nutritional studies it's, it's just and, and i don't know if that's really ever going to get much better with uh, a completely diverse port i mean you'd have to do that with every demographic right as well right. so it's you, you're going to do a, a vegetable oil thing long-term all this in this demographic this demographic this demographic all that stuff because yeah, every right. study is like 22 year old college female athlete, soccer, <laughs> right. soccer, soccer player. Right, right. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's really tough. Um, and and so this is why, like, I hate to be because I I love to say like let's look at the research, but I do think people kind of need to test some of these things out for themselves. And I'm not going to tell somebody who says, hey, like I took out this food group and I feel amazing. Maybe their reasoning is wrong. But fine, like your reasoning could be wrong as long as you're not promoting it as like a savior on Instagram. And this yes. is what everybody else has to do. That's that's where we get into the problems. Right. Um, but if it's working for you, then that's fine. And maybe like I personally, like I'm, I'm very analytical, so I would want to try to figure out why. But we still want the results first, like primarily as far as low FODMAP, that, that is actually pretty well studied. Um, relatively speaking, and I think it's generally accepted. Well, maybe not, but I think it should be generally used as an elimination diet, right? So for people who don't know, elimination diet, you're basically taking out all these potentially problematic foods. So like maybe the most extreme example would be like a carnivore diet, right? Where you're taking anything out that could be potentially problematic. But generally, the idea is that you slowly add things back in to see how you feel right and and hopefully you can get to the point that you're not so restrictive and then you are feeling better but this is mostly based on symptoms not really based on like are we seeing long-term health outcomes right like being gassy throughout your life is not like a good like desirable thing but i don't know of any research that's saying like this is also going to like really harm your health long term right it's just, it's just not comfortable and it's a situation you want to be in um and and you know trying to define like IBS, right? And that that whole thing could be kind of nebulous as well. So um, but I think the diets are fine. I mean, I think they're fine to try out for symptom relief, but I would more or less end it there. Yeah. No, I agree. I think with the symptom relief stuff, it's uh like I, I typically will deploy something like like gluten-free, dairy-free for people for women in menopause. Like I, I tend to find that it works well for them because it starts to remove potential inflammatory things out of their lifestyle and then they start to feel better and then there's also that psychological win and i used to be very dogmatic against like placating to people but now as i've gotten further and further into this career i don't mind you feeling sore i don't mind you feeling better on this this or this removal like i used to be like no like there's the textbook says this and we're doing it this way yeah now i'm like fuck it if you're happy and you're satisfied with my service and you're satisfied with our relationship and you're getting some level of a a positive benefit from working with me great yeah. <laughs> that's better where you, than where you were before yeah, I yeah like and i would just reiterate as long as it's not then promoted as this was the answer right like this is why it's working and then everybody else needs to do it yeah i think that you, you've you've touched on that a few times throughout of fuck around and find out try these things out see what you like see what modality you like see try try hey if you heard something about vegetables you want to take them out of your diet see if you notice a difference cool and there's also times for a season you know some somebody does carnivore and they felt they feel great and they think it's carnivore doesn't mean that it's forever 
it maybe was great because you were used to eating total shit. So when you cut the shit out, it wasn't the fact that it was carnivores. Maybe you cut the stuff out. Not every training modality lasts forever. It's not like you do CrossFit forever. It's not necessarily that you're going to do functional fitness forever or bodybuilding for it. Like these things can all change and there's different seasons of our lives. And I'm excited for when Aram gets a few years older and he's like, oh, I, and he can't walk. And he's like, I do think that people should be doing functional training because one of the downsides of bodybuilding <laughs> <laughs> is that you turn into a brick shit house that can't yeah. move. Listen, I'm going to fucking do this shit until the wheels fall off. And I am fine with it because there's always going to be some new chemical that comes out that I'll be able to inject somewhere intramuscularly that will give me some type <laughs> of a benefit. I can't wait for your wheels to fall off. And then you're going to be in a wheelchair and it's like you're actually on wheels. And then we'll see. I'll if be those, so fast. I'll be those, way faster on wheels than I will be on my two feet. He wants to be in a wheelchair so that he can finally be a competitive athlete. He thinks that <laughs> yeah, he can right. then join the Paralympics. He thinks he, he'll be able to do something dead. The closest <laughs> I'll ever get to dunking. <laughs> Dave, one last thing for you. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, the adaptive physiological processes, right? Like people adapt to diets, people adapt to workouts. Just so people kind of understand what adaptation means, because I think sometimes adaptation can be positive and sometimes adaptation can be negative. But we have to drive adaptation to produce some type of a result. Just in a 30,000-foot view, how would you explain that to the layperson so they understand that, like, if I do XYZ diet, at some point, it won't be a diet for me anymore. If I do this type of workout, I'll get better at it. I'll adapt. It won't be as effective. Yeah. Yeah, that is, again, I mean, I think that's kind of an overarching theme here where we talked about progressive overload and everything. The reason it's progressive overload is because that thing that was hard initially, you will eventually get used to it and it will no longer be a stimulus, right? You talk about homeostasis within the body and, and everything. And so um, this is why I always emphasize that even though we think of progressive overload as, you know, lifting more weight in the gym, and that is traditionally how it's thought of, it, you could say progressive deficit, right? In, in reality, it's a progressive drop in calories, but the deficit might not actually be greater. So your body is going to adapt. And I understand that you were maintaining on 3000 calories and you dropped to 2,500, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily even going to lose weight. Sometimes not even initially, you know, other than maybe a little bit of water weight, because um, there could be a pretty big range for people that kind of that they, I call like a maintenance range, right? Where you might be able to maintain within one or two pounds within like a 700 calorie range for some people. I mean, you know, depending on your need, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis, um, there can be a lot of things. Again, your body adapts to those changes, sometimes very rapidly. And so um, I, I think whether it's to gain muscle or lose fat or whatever other habit you're trying to, you know, um, ascertain, I think you just need to understand that things are, and I hate to um, maybe promote Greg Doucette, but, you know, it'll be like harder than last time. And it's, you know, might not literally be harder, but you have to drive that adaptation by progressing. Um, so, and, and that's probably another thing where we maybe take it for granted because it's just so straightforward, but the average person probably doesn't understand that. Well, if I'm at 2000 calories and I was eating 2,500, like, shouldn't I just keep losing weight? And unfortunately the answer is no. Right. Yeah. yeah that's that, but that's such a bitch for people. I mean, it's like, well, it's, you know, what was a deficit is now maintenance. Then you have to drive a new deficit and then that's going to become maintenance. And then you just keep going down and down and down. And this is why it's such an easy thing to just install periodization, help somebody toggle through those things. And then just basically you could use the concept of periodization and either training or nutrition for the rest of your life and always kind of be net in a positive place. Usually. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Listen, thank you, Dave, for coming on. Dr. David McConey from New Jersey, best state in the country. Fantastic. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, man, it was great meeting you. Maybe I'll see you in Ocean City in a couple weeks. I'll take a little drive down.